Monaco and Culture is brought to you in association with the all-electric 2024 Cadillac Lyric. Magnificence electrified. The Cadillac Lyric delivers a sporty, responsive and agile drive that makes every mile a milestone. This groundbreaking Ultium EV battery platform fundamentally changes how electric vehicles are engineered, delivering charging and power storage technologies that fit seamlessly into far-reaching journeys and daily commutes. The Lyric is a vehicle that balances the sensual and the technical in masterful harmony, where rhythm, form and colour unite. From emergency braking to intelligent alerts, parking assistance to vehicle monitoring, the Cadillac Smart System suite of safety and driver assistant features, standard on the Lyric, means you'll drive with added confidence. While innovations like available supercruise driver assistance technology and Google built-in set a new standard for technical prowess. Take the next step. Head to Cadillac.com now to configure your car. The all-electric 2024 Cadillac Lyric. Magnificence Electrified. Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Bound. Today we're heading to the bucolic idyll of Inishirin, an imaginary island off the west coast of Ireland where there are white sandy beaches below rugged cliffs and vast skies. But it's 1923 and in the distance on the mainland we catch occasional violent glimpses of the ongoing civil war. In the world of Martin McDonagh's new film, however, it is the much smaller civil war raging on Inishirin which takes centre stage. Colm, played by Brendan Gleeson, has decided he no longer wishes to associate with his best friend Porig, played by Colin Farrell. Porig has given little explanation for this decision, but is told in no uncertain terms that blood will be spilt if he persists in trying to be pals. Of course, the cracks that put a stop to two men's daily pub trips on a sparsely populated island inevitably become deep fissures within the small society. Porig's sister Siobhan, played by Kerry Condon, and Dominic Kearney, played by Barry Keown, create a supporting cast for the feud at the heart of the film, as do Porig's flock of farmyard animals, a certain Jenny the donkey stealing the limelight. The Banshees of Inishirin is a darkly comic tale of isolation and friendship, but does its tone strike a chord for our reviewers? Well, I'm joined today by the film critic for The Telegraph, Tim Roby, and by the freelance writer and broadcaster, Simran Hans. Welcome both to the studio. Lovely to have you here. Hi. Um, hi. Shall we, shall we get into the mood with a bit of the trailer? We've kind of set it up nicely. People will know where we are, but what will it sound like? Here it is. Colm Sonny Larry. Didn't you and he used to be the best of friends? We're still the best of friends. No, you're not. Who says we're not? Sit somewhere else. Now, if I've done something to you, just tell me what I've done to you. And you didn't do anything to me. I just don't like you no more. Did you like me yesterday? Why does he not want to be friends with you no more? Why is he 12? <laughs> that sums it up pretty neatly. That was a bit of the trailer of the Banshees of Inishirin. 
Tim, we'll come to you first. It's a beautiful film. We've got there, we've got lovely lilting accents. We've mentioned that sort of the thing looks amazing. What is the sort of tone of this film? Well, yeah, a little bit of chirpy pipe music there and the lovely sweeping shots of the coast of this island. Yeah. You, you might think you're settling in for a kind of a delightful, cosy little film on an Irish island, but Martin <laughs> McDonough does have other ideas for you. Yeah. It is, in fact, bitterly bleak and deadpan and very darkly funny but in that mode that he does so well where the the macabre and the funny kind of settle in side by side it's essentially about sort of futility depression aging and pointless discord all the fun things (laughs) i really like it a lot and i like it I like it more than some of his other films because I feel it's more spacious and it gives yeah. you room to think a little bit about what it's saying. It doesn't kind of hammer you so much with its ideas in the way that I think his last film, Three Billboards mm-hmm. uh, Outside Emming, Missouri, did, where I just thought there was sort of almost too much noise and too much conflict from every angle on screen. Here is a, it's a, it's a very sparse tale, really, and the sparseness is, comes from the fact that the reasons for Colm's decision... To, to end this friendship are just left quite mysterious and they're, they're sort of within him essentially and mm-hmm. Brendan Gleeson hints at what they might be but he, it, it, there's something locked away about them and I think that enables the film to kind of speak and be a parable on other issues and a parable about war a parable about the triviality of, of, um, of slights and tiny things escalating into all out war which happens between these two men yeah and as we said as we said in the introduction we hear the sort of bombs and shrapnel and all the rest of it going off on the mainland just over the water. Simran, is this as sad and spare as as Tim says it is? Or are we existing in a kind of 100-minute fable here, I wonder? I mean, I think it's both of those things. One thing that I want to kind of draw our attention to Mm. as we kind of start to talk about this film is all of the things that are funny about it on paper and then how kind of McDonough undercuts all of that. So... It's about this like loser, loner guy played by Colin Farrell. His best friend is a donkey. You know, he goes to visit his other best friend, a real life man. And suddenly he doesn't want to be friends with him anymore. That's just very funny. That's got a lot of comic potential. And actually, I came away from this film just quite overwhelmed and haunted by how sad it is. But yeah, there's a lot of comedy in here. There's... I guess I was going to say there's mutilation, but is that funny? It, it's quite funny. <laughs> that's the that's the sort of the darkest of all the dark comedies, isn't it? Like yeah, what we what we've alluded to in the introduction, I suppose. I guess it's jokes taken to their kind of literal, taken in the literal sense, and that is kind of comic. But it's just so heavy, and I really kind of came away from this film kind of feeling quite depressed. Really, I wondered what to think. I mean, I don't, I don't want to be told what to think, and I know, and, and I think Tim's right to say there's a lot of um, sort of there's sort of ambivalence about what really it's about in a way. But I kind of felt quite unsettled when I walked out of the out of the cinema. Actually, yeah, I think it's a it's about kind of masculinity that hasn't been expressed and sort of men feeling all of these deep emotions and and being afflicted by despair really they call it despair in the film and that manifests differently for the different characters but they're just so unable to express it partly because of the patriarchy partly because they're men and that's kind of um, not culturally acceptable but also I think it's a big part of Irish culture as well the sort of stoicism and the kind of getting on with it and being resigned to your condition and to your lot in life and uh, yeah I think the film kind of plays with those ideas. Yeah that's a really interesting point because there's a sort of triangle isn't there between Porig who's 
who's ignorant of how sad he might be because he's got Jenny the donkey and he's got he's got Colm up until the point where the film opens, I suppose. And Colm, I suppose, is clever enough. He sees himself as a great sort of Celtic artist, you know, and he's, he's, he plays his violin and he listens to these wonderful folk songs and all the rest of it. And Porig's sister is super important in this, isn't she? She's a real kind of linchpin of this triangle, I suppose, who, again, is easily the brightest of all of them but is kind of living under no kind of apprehensions that she's kind of in the wrong place, as the film kind of goes on to say. So there's a kind of triangle right there, isn't yeah, there? Yeah, she, she hasn't denied to herself the possibility of escape and she mm. gets given this opportunity, uh, this job on the mainland, uh, has to ponder that because it means leaving her brother behind. And she's painfully aware that he's kind of stuck there and so is his friend. What do their lives hold for them from this point onwards? And is what they've got enough? And that's the question that... Porig never really asks himself. He just doesn't worry about it. He's like, well, this will do. But he Colum, wants every day to be the same. Yeah. Whereas Colm obviously wants like, to is this, improve Is there himself. more? Is yeah. there more still while I'm entering my kind of twilight years? Of, is there more out there for me? Is this all I've got? And I think because Porig kind of represents his the daily you know, churn of his existence in a way and the kind of daily banality of it, he rebels against that idea and that person. Uh, and that's, I think, what we sense from him at the beginning. He's like, I, I actually am going to draw a line here. Yeah. Uh, I need something new, finally. I think there is something very funny about the idea of Brendan Gleeson's character being a cellist and being this very sad man who is literally playing a tiny violin. <laughs> yeah. Yes. It's, and, uh, of course, that... it gets funnier and funnier because of uh, certain digits that may well go missing over the course of the film, which render his violin skills increasingly weak. Yes, right, <laughs> it is. Yeah. And talking about the, the horror in this, Simran, it's a kind of keystone of a lot of Martin McDonough's work. There's always something. Bruges had it. Obviously, uh, Three Billboards had it. I think it was run through his plays as well, which I know, know less well. But it's kind of shocking, but it's, it's always shocking and funny, but always is kind of the central point of it, right? It's the, it's the kind of thing that you walk out of the cinema wondering if there's a couple of fingers too many in your pocket, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, there's a brutality to his sense of humour and that manifests in the kind of barbed nature of the jokes and the banter that all the characters have with each other, the kind of coarseness of the language, the swearing, there's a lot of swearing, there's a lot of the F word... Uh, said in a, a very delightful Irish accent. <laughs> and then also the physical violence, the bloodiness, the gore, the kind of grotesqueness of it. And, um, you know, earlier Tim called it a parable. And I think that's the, a great kind of way of thinking about it as this kind of dark fairy tale that tells us something about essential human nature, which is really kind of hinging on this existential question of does God really care? You know, Colm is kind of in the confessional booth talking to the priest, wondering if God actually cares about miniature donkeys. And, you know, it's a line that's played for laughs, but it's really something that haunts the film. You know, does he care about our individual kind of despair? Yeah, and, and obviously there's they everyone troops off to church on a Sunday. There's the confessional. Those scenes are very funny as well. There's sort of the somberness. There's the sort of the sacrament. A lot of the sacrament of turning up to church and none of the belief because there's a lot of there's not a lot of what you see as godliness elsewhere in the film. Is there? Yeah, this this film reminded me a bit of some plays, but not necessarily Martin McDonagh's own plays because he obviously started out in the theatre with stuff mm. like The Pillow Man and mm. Lieutenant of Inishmore, which were very kind of very blackly mordant, violent 
plays with bodies piling up at the end, kind of Tarantino-ish in a way. And obviously there's the, there are vestiges of that here, but actually it reminded me a little bit more of plays by someone like Brian Friel, a certain kind of despair just seeping into the fabric of Irish life as we go on. And I kind of like that transition for him. I think it, it, it works. And it's it, for me, it's his best film since In Bruges, which was the last one that paired Colin Farrell and, and Brendan Gleeson very first, memorably. That was his first feature, which is kind yeah. of, you feel that he's, I suppose, because he's had a big career in the theatre, he's got a more expansive back catalogue than... Well, also, he has a brother who keeps making much less good films, in my view, <laughs> uh, John Michael, uh, who... And I think I, I get the, the impression with those two that they kind of grew up firing off daring banter at each other and seeing who could be more shocking in the household, as it were. Yeah. And you get a lot of those jokes coming out in uh, John Michael's film, something like War on Everyone, which I really hated. But in this, it's softened a little bit by the sadness, as Simran's saying. Like, it's those jokes are there, but there's something almost fatigued about them. It's just the same joke they've told every time. So it doesn't have that kind of stinging novelty that you kind of expect from him. It's been worn down over the years, like a sort of stone. And I like that. And there, there are minor characters who, you know, only a McDonough brother would put in a film I feel you know the village idiot that they dare have a village idiot in this day and age Barry Kogan's character and I love the old crone who is this sort of essentially she's the, amazing the, yeah, banshee, she's the banshee right? essentially yeah. the banshee of this island who kind of sits there sort of eyeing everyone up and trying to figure out what the most poisonous thing is she can say but the worst insult that's delivered to her is the idea that people might walk around the island hiding beneath the walls in order to avoid looking at her well I guess uh, in 1923 you would have probably put these stock characters in a film, in a play or a drama set on an island off the west coast of Ireland, you probably wouldn't have to look far to find people that might fit these nowadays inapt descriptions of people, I suppose, right? I suppose that kind of goes with the territory. And there's a line in the film as well where one of the characters, I think it's Colm, says, nobody from the 17th century was remembered for being nice. Yeah, it's Which so good. is kind of, I guess, <clears throat> McDonough winking at himself there. And he's been kind of both, I guess, praised and criticised for his lack of niceness, his lack of cuddliness. But something about, I don't know, like how personal it feels in this film made me connect with it way more. He's not just like interested in these ideas in an abstract kind of cold way. You get the sense that he's writing from some kind of experience, you know, Uh, unlike Three Billboards, which is, I guess, where it all went, went wrong. Well, yeah. It's just good to have him back in Ireland, isn't it, really? You feel as though he knows he knows these people better. We've talked about sort of the, the minor characters and stuff. What about the casts? I mean, uh, Brendan Gleeson and Colin Farrell are so strong, whereas in Bruges was a buddy movie with a kind of general, with a sort of, the balance of power is similar in this. You've got Brendan Gleeson's character, Colin, as the kind of guy in charge, the older sort of statesman of the two of them, such as he is. But what about the interplay between the two of these guys? I like the idea of this as a sort of sequel, the rather depressing sequel to a buddy movie, because <laughs> buddy movies almost always end with, you know, the friendship stronger than ever. It's like no matter what they've gone through, there's some there's some part of it that's kind of integral to them both. And and this just decides what if that's not true, you know, in a particular friendship? What if a friendship is not really based on enough? Which is certainly the way Colm sees it. And I think they both play it really well. I think it's it's sort of less surprising to me that Brendan Gleeson plays it as well as he does, because I just think he's such a stalwart. And we kind of know he can do those reserves of kind of sorrow and a slight a dry intelligence. But Colin Farrell is a revelation in this, I think. I think it's probably his best performance ever. And his last great one was 
well, other than his films with Yorgos Lanthimos, which I think he's very good mm. in, I think probably In Bruges is the last other great one. And I loved him in it. I think I think he's so, there's something about him, he's sort of the clown in a way, but he's not really funny. And he's sort of... He's he, a sad clown. He's a sad yeah. clown. And he's sort of happy-go-lucky in a way that's very sweet and very earnest. There's a scene where he kind of breaks down in tears because he's been injured on the street. And that's the one scene where Colm kind of comes to his rescue in a kind of way. And that's very touching. And I, I think it's a very deep performance, actually. I love yeah. him. All of Colin Farrell's emotions are sitting right on the surface. He's so open. He's got this very boyish, almost like kind of cartoonish face. His eyebrows are <laughs> sort of moving in crazy directions. He's so expressive. And then, yeah, you have the opposite with Brendan Gleeson. All of it is kind of buried and internal. And I think what's quite clever about the structure of the film is that McDonough kind of flips your allegiances so we start off thinking oh you know Colm is being a bit unreasonable why doesn't he want to be his friend we have an allegiance with Porig and then as the film progresses we start to kind of question that it's very finely balanced you know it's not kind of swinging aggressively one way or the other it's very very subtle and yeah despite Porig's kind of cheery chirpy everyday persona after he's had a few drinks, he gets mean. And yeah. we start to ask ourselves, why is that? What is what is there underneath that surface that kind of that lives down there? And is is Colm in fact worried about that in some way? Or in fact, as it turns out, Colm finds that more interesting. But Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, yeah. You said something yeah, you said something really interesting for the first time last night when he's nursing a sort of whiskey hangover and he's had a set two of them in the pub. I wanted just before we go to talk about the sort of the place of gossip in the film, because there is a lot of gossip and a lot of hearsay, a lot of people not actually saying things directly to each other's faces. There's uh, an excellent proprietress of the post office in the only kind of village on the island of Enishirin. So tell us, maybe, Simon, you can flesh this out a little bit, the power of gossip, because it's it's super small. We, we, as we say, we open up, we swoop dronishly across this beautiful island, and you wonder if it's going to be something like James Herriot. <laughs> it turns out it's not. But then we've got this cute little village post office and well yeah she's she's sort of cute but she's sort of a bit sinister really you know gossip spreads like wildfire and kind of everybody kind of starts off being like i heard you're rowing what are you rowing about but even porig doesn't know what him and him yeah. are rowing about i'm not irish myself but i know a lot of irish people would feel that that resonates with them that kind of gossip that kind of characterises the community of the film. Everybody sort of knows the structure is a structure of a society is, is what it's built upon like that, right? Exactly, and everybody right. knows each other's business and it, you get the sense that it's a community and so when one set of people fall out, it's not just a problem between two people, it's a problem for the whole town. This, this actually chimes with one thing that the film set me to thinking about, which is not only is it a parable for, you know, conflict in some abstract way, but actually in our present moment, it felt it made me think a lot about kind of Twitter feuds because Twitter is, as a social media platform, has reduced the world to a village in a way and everything is being fired off and everyone knows what's being said behind everyone's backs. Everyone sees the subtweets, everyone then DMs and t- tells each other about them and all this sort of thing. And that's how these fights kind of escalate in social media terms. And it did make me think about that. It made me think about those little microaggressions that can kind of st- uh, steamroll and gather yeah. gather steam. Um, Talking of steam, uh, Siobhan goes in to pick up a letter. You've got a letter from the mainland, from Dublin, and it's obviously, you know, it's a red letter day. 
literally. And uh, she's like, oh, did it open itself, the letter? Because obviously <laughs> the postmistress has opened this letter and she goes, oh, it must be the humidity. Yeah. <laughs> and it's sort of lashing with rain outside. <laughs> the rest of it. Um, but I think it's so yeah. much to do with the kind of parochial nature mm. of life on the island. They're separate from the mainland. They're kind of cut off from everybody else. And so the toxicity of the gossip kind of fuels the argument even further and contributes to the sort of small-mindedness of the community. Yeah, there's very few places left to run on Inishirin, I suppose. Definitely some of the barflies in that pub are kind of propping it up, thinking, what's going to kick off tonight? You know, what's the latest in, yeah. this, in this saga? And yeah. they're sort of they're eyeing it from the margins. And who hasn't been that barfly? Sure, yeah. yeah. In life. Exactly. Who <laughs> hasn't been one of the characters? I wonder if we could just give Jenny a little scratch on the ear before we go <laughs> this is the most basic thing to bring away from any film I was like everyone surely should have a pet donkey a micro donkey someone's not looking particularly impressed well I was just gonna uh, say clip around in your kitchen say justice for the border collie who is also <laughs> an important pet in the film but I, I definitely think animals are used to kind of show people's humanity you know even if you wouldn't save your friend would you save a dog would you save a donkey those McDonald's must have grown up with some good pets because there was a great dog in Calvary as well. Yes, John indeed. Michael's film. The, yeah. the, the best relationship in the film was between Brendan Gleeson and that dog. I do like those pets. Thank you both for your thoughts on the Banshees of Inishirin. Time for you to tell us what it made you kind of search for in your DVD cabinet, if people still have such a thing. I um, do. Yeah, I do. I've got a shelf, but <laughs> I've got a lot of... Blu-rays in storage in, a, in okay. a new house that we've not yet packed into. So. Well, that's something to that's light the fire. Yeah, crack on, <laughs> Tim. Um, and maybe one of the first things you'll be thinking about is your recommendation, which is whatever happened to Baby Jane. Yeah, so uh, this nice is, might one. seem like a weird one, but I was just thinking about feuds <clears throat> and about people whose lives have been spent together feuding, I suppose, on film. Mm. And that popped into my head, obviously, as a kind of very gender-flipped example. This is the 1962 classic with Betty Davis and Joan Crawford as sisters who have entering a kind of decaying spinsterhood and really cannot live with each other or without each other. It's the one with Betty Davis serving up a dead crow on a plate to Joan Crawford and dragging her out of her wheelchair and all of those things. And we know that in real life, the two actresses had this feud as well. And we know that from partly from that HBO show that yeah. Ryan Murphy made with um, Susan Sarandon and Jessica Lang. It's obviously a, a different scenario because we, we know that this sibling rivalry has, has been crucial to this particular feud from the earliest days of baby Jane being this kind of celebrity child star and her sister feeling like she's, she was the sort of downtrodden failure. It's the feud that keeps them alive, it's, almost. It's the yeah. feud that keeps them alive. And there's something sort of strangely tender about the film for all of its kind of camp qualities and its, and its kind of uh, almost, yeah, macabre Grom Guignol elements, I suppose. There's something oddly touching about them as well, and there are stray moments where you sort of sense their reliance upon each other. And, and again, the macabre elements of Madonna's film put this in mind for me. And it also struck me quite oddly that both films end on the beach. They yeah. both, they both yeah. end with a strange scene of master shot on the beach of the characters kind of drifting apart. And in the case of Betty Davis, she's sort of doing a dance of madness with fans who can't believe that this, you know, superannuated spinster is still 
playing out the uh, the routine she did when she was like a 10-year-old Shirley Temple figure. It's very creepy. I think Inishirin has a slightly a slightly unsettling ending as well because it feels very abrupt to me. It feels like you, you're not necessarily expecting that to be the last scene when you see it, which hopefully isn't a spoiler because people won't know which scene I'm talking about quite, no. except that it's on a beach. But There's there not a lot of looking out to see yeah, in the film. there is, so. yeah. You don't get catharsis in the way you might expect. <clears throat> that's it. And that's one of the things I do actually value about the film because I feel as though it doesn't hammer things home too much there at the end it kind of it lets you drift out thinking about it and slightly perturbed about it mm. uh, it's kind of open-ended in that way um, but yeah I always go back to whatever happened to baby Jane it is one of the yeah it's in that blu-ray set somewhere and it will come out <laughs> onto the shelf and I'll watch it again and again it's a strangely delightful film for all of its sort of horror elements nice fresh from the currently in storage DVD collection of Tim Roby that was whatever happened to baby Jane thanks Tim Simon you've chosen to talk about the career of Barry Kean. Yes, the power of Barry Kean as well. Um, He's so good in this. Yeah, he really stood out to me in this film, even though it's a small role. He plays this guy called Dominic, who is kind of, as Tim put it earlier, he's sort of the village idiot. He's the Shakespearean fool character of the film. He's the son of a policeman. And some pretty dark things we learn have kind of happened to him. And yet he has this vulnerability and this wisdom that really makes him, I don't know, like... St- just a, a very compelling presence in the film. And, you know, he's so young compared with the gravitas of the older men. I thought he was really interesting in this film. And I, I actually think he's been really interesting in all of the films that I've seen him in. I mean, you might have seen him in Dunkirk or in uh, The Killing of a Sacred Deer, which he also starred in with Colin Farrell. Mm-hmm. He is a very small part in the chivalric romance, The Green Knight. He has Such a, kind a good of, film, that. Isn't Love it? Yeah. A tragically underrated yeah. film. Yeah, he was a sort of creepy, jaunty peasant, wasn't he? Sort of yeah. Like, yeah. Exactly. That's, <laughs> I, that's perfectly put. I hope um, that that's what it says uh, in the casting. <laughs> he he was also really great in uh, an indie movie called Calm With Horses, where mm. he played a, a kind of henchman. He was in Chloe Jaws, The Eternals, and he is going to be the Joker in the follow-up to The Batman, which is the... Rob Pattinson one. And he's got this sort of restless energy, which he's able to kind of harness into either sort of goofy comedy. You know, in The Green Knight, he's very funny. In this, he kind of has a funny edge. Or he kind of like channels that hyperness, uh, that hyperactivity into this brooding kind of swaggering presence. And that's kind of what his character's like in in The Eternals. He kind of clumps around uh, in his... Well, I, do, I guess they're not Doc Martens, but they might as well be. Um, and in this film, I just saw a different side of him. He's really vulnerable and um, he's just doing something different. I also think he's got a really interesting face. He's got a great um, face, yeah. He has got a great face. And I, I think so many actors, particularly now, are so boringly handsome. And he's got these really piercing light blue eyes and this kind of twisted menacing smile that's the weird thing at first I wasn't sure I was going to like him in the film because I thought perhaps he's too menacing for the role There's, we've, we've seen him play like serial killers and so on exactly. and there's something unsettling about it but what I will say is that by his final scenes I, th- I thought he'd sort of sunk into a much more vulnerable mode like you're saying totally and, and he's got this like I don't know how to describe it. It's almost like there's a feral edge to him and it can kind of be softened or it can be amped up. He always looks as though he's just rolled out of a bush somewhere in Ireland, like a thicket. (laughs) He's just like, come out, and there he is. Yeah, he's got a real restless energy. I mean, in this film, the character has a sort of restless energy that you don't quite know whether he's going to be tender. He's he's in love with Siobhan and he kind of, you don't know how that's, 
going to be played out. And in fact, it's quite tenderly. But yes, you don't know quite what, you know, there's, I don't want to spoil it, but, you know, they're standing somewhere precipitous at the time and you don't quite know how that's going to end. But he does have, in the end, and he's, of course, got the best, he's the sort of idiot savant, isn't he? He's got the best advice. He kind of knows miles more than anyone else on the island, but without resorting to gossip, he knows it sort of innately as a human because he's always on the outside looking in, I suppose. There's he's got a, a bit of an incel quality too, I guess, which is part of what he can play with with his slightly edge, slight edge of menace. Mm. Of menace but, and maybe that's why they cast yeah. him as the Joker. I think he's a really interesting actor and, and you know, I haven't really seen anyone like him. He's going to be in Saltburn, which is directed by Emerald Fennell, who made Promising Young Women. And he's also going to be in an Apple TV miniseries called Masters of the Air with Austin Butler, which is about a trio of World War II pilots. And that has some interesting directors attached to it as well, I think. And cool. so I'm kind of interested to see where he goes. I think he could be really big. Beautifully put. Thanks for pulling Barry Kean out of the out of the cast of the Banshees of Inner Sheeran. By the way, just before we finish, I think we all walked out of the, the screening room with, with kind of one scratching our heads slightly, maybe because of the ending. But I found it very tender and moving and a very clever thing about maybe blokes, maybe just about friends generally. But did you find it a tender a tender watch or was it too strange for that? No, I, I completely agree with you, Rob. I thought it was really moving and you don't really get, I don't know, men's interior worlds <laughs> being explored with that kind of depth of feeling. I never thought I'd be on a podcast saying, let's listen to uh, to men more. Let's hear more about what's going on with men. But uh, I do think that kind of, yeah, repressed emotion is, is something that's really rich terrain for McDonough. I mean, we've probably given away a bit too much in a way because it's not completely a given the way the film's going to end. No. Because we, we're used to friendships being repaired and that's what happens in, in cinema a lot. Yeah. And there's always, there are hints of it being possible throughout this, which I think keeps it, keeps an element of tension in play, you know, when he's injured, when Podrick's injured. That's a beautiful scene and it's played so well by them both. It's the most moving scene so I've found. moving, isn't it? Oh, it's beautiful. It's uh, It's been a great subject to talk about. Thank you both very much. My thanks to Simran Hans and Tim Roby. And The Banshees of Inishirin is out in cinemas now. Monocle on Culture is produced by Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Steph Chongu. And Steph also edits the programme. We will be back at the same time next week. But until then, from me, Robert Bound, thanks for tuning in. 